Second thing is there there is a golden rule uh, of conspiracy, conspiracja as we call it in Polish, which is underground activity. And that is that uh, they, the secret police, uh, your enemy, they can uh, they can know who you are, but they mustn't know what you do. Or they can know what you do, but they mustn't know who you are. And if you can keep separate what you do and who you are, that's how you can be successful in the underground. You're listening to The Live Drop. This is a special episode in collaboration with my sponsor, the Venda Museum of the Cold War in Los Angeles, California. I've included one of my interviews from the Venda Museum's Historical Witness Project, sponsored by Fiona Shalom and Joel Aronowitz, which seeks to preserve voices of the Cold War for future generations. In November last year, I went to Warsaw, Poland to help retrieve historical documents and smuggled Zamzidat materials from the years of the Solidarity Uprising for an upcoming exhibit at the museum. I interviewed several key players in the Polish anti-communist movement, one of whom is my guest for this episode, Witold Radvansky. Witold's experience as a daring underground operator working in and out of Poland offers a view into the relationships, connections, rat lines, allies, enemies, and tradecraft necessary to fund and supply the resistance movement from the 1970s until the communists were peacefully voted out of power in 1989. He speaks to me from an apartment in Warsaw near the former ghetto where his relatives had struggled a generation before him. Begin transmission now. So the first thing I would say is that um, I'm Polish, but um, I uh, was born and grew up outside of communist Poland um, because of uh, the history of my parents, essentially, who, uh, for various reasons, who left Poland during World War II and who didn't come back to Poland after World War II. So um, I, w- I, I was born and I grew up uh, in Africa and later on in um, England, as you can tell from my voice and accent, and then in various European countries I lived as well during the 1980s. Um, my father um, was... Uh, well, maybe we should go back to World War II. It's where sure. it all begins. And my father was uh, uh, a member of the Polish underground uh, movement during na- the Nazi occupation of Warsaw. And um, he belonged to a specific um, commando unit that was um, actively involved in, in shall we say, um, um, military type of activities. So assassinations of German officers, collaborators and so on. Uh, but he also belonged to um, uh, an underground movement that was equally anti-communist as it was anti-German. And um, for that reason, he uh, was not able to come back to Poland after World War II because everybody in his unit uh, was either killed or, or um, captured and later on killed by the communists when they came to Poland. And only those who found themselves outside of the country um, survived. Um, And he survived because just before the Warsaw Uprising, he was arrested by the Gestapo. And um, uh, after tortures and so on, he was sent first of all to Majdanek concentration camp, then to Grossrosen concentration camp, and finally ended the war in Madhausen 
in Austria, uh, where he was liberated by um, a platoon of American soldiers, as it turned out. And um, he didn't go back to Poland after World War II because he was warned not to, because he knew what was happening to his other members of his organization. Where did you say he was? Nordhausen? Madhausen. Oh, Madhausen. Madhausen, in Austria. Um, which, as you know, was partly liberated by, by the U.S. So um, he chose to stay in the West. Um, uh, my mother, on her side, um, as a child at the age of 13, um, she was uh, sentenced by the Soviets to 25 years um, hard labor in um, Siberia and was deported to Siberia um, because she was in her family was living in the eastern part of Poland um, when, when the Russians came in. And um, her brother was executed by the NKVD, um, which is the precursor of the KGB. And she and her mother, her fa father was sentenced to eight years in a gulag, and she was deported with her mother to Siberia, to the outer parts of Siberia. And to cut a long story short, uh, she managed to come out of uh, the Soviet Union, lived in a refugee camp in India for about five or six years, and then um, meandered her way back to England, where she re reunited with members of her family and stayed in England. And uh, my, the, my mother and my father happened to meet in England. They got married and uh, went off to Africa. They spent many years living in, first of all, the Gold Coast, which is today Ghana, and then Uganda. And um, we were born, my, myself, my brother and my sister were all born in Africa. We grew up there. And we were brought up in a Polish atmosphere, patriotic, you could say, Polish type of... Um, identity um, in, in, in the middle of Africa. Uh, then we moved to uh, the United Kingdom where we got an education and um, maintained, I would say, um, contact. We were part of the Polish emigre community uh, in uh, Great Britain, um, former soldiers who had fought on, on the Allied side during World War II. Um, so we were always um, aware of our Polishness. Uh, we were always uh, interested in what was happening in Poland. Um, and we cultivated, uh, shall we say, our Polish uh, identity, if you like. And um, by the 1970s, well, my father, as I said, couldn't go back, but my mother was able to go back. And she took us to Poland quite often uh, to visit family, relatives, and just to see the country throughout the 1970s. So uh, I, uh, I was, as I grew up, I would, you know, also witness uh, the changing uh, Poland, Polish landscape um, uh, during my youth. And um, by the mid-70s, when uh, the first the dissident movements began in Poland, um, it was a sort of, that was, if you like, my sort of early awakening. I was an early young teenager there, and I remember in 1977, after some, 76, after some worker rights 
worker protests and repressions took place in Poland. Uh, I, I, I had 10 pounds savings and I gave five pounds to this uh, committee of defense of workers that was a dissident group that was being set up at the time so I gave my, half my entire life savings uh, to support the um, prototype opposition in Poland so I would say that that was uh, my first sort of um, emergence of some kind of political consciousness yeah, or political you know, activity um, when uh, Solidarity uh, the strikes began in 1980 and Solidarity was created um, that was just amazing uh, for me uh, I was at the time a student uh, in a university in Great Britain and uh, we together with other people like myself um, quickly created um, uh, an organization in Great Britain called uh, Polish Solidarity Campaign um, which uh, was essentially a lobby, a lobbying type of organisation promoting uh, solidarity in Great Britain. In particular, um, our task was to um, uh, get the British trade unions, who were, to put it bluntly, quite pro-Soviet at the time, uh, to get them to recognise solidarity as an independent trades union. I mean formally recognize them uh, to, so that they could join the international trades union movement and there was tremendous resistance uh, to that um, but anyway so we created uh, publications, we lobbied in parliament we visited the trades unions and so on and so on so um, that was what I was What was the resistance? I mean America, I think the American AFL-CIO gave money as well. Yeah, but that uh, Americans were quite quick to support and I'll come back to okay. the AFL later on. But uh, British Labour Party and British trade unions were uh, were generally pro pro Russia. The long tradition of uh, should not say pro Russian but sympathetic to Russia. I suspect quite heavily penetrated and infiltrated with um, Russian uh, pro call them Russian, but in those days it was Soviet uh, uh, influences. And um, um, we're, not, we're, we're very much uh, uh, anti-Thatcher, anti-Reagan at the time, so by, by default you could say that they were more supportive of, uh, of uh, Russia. And the same was the case in France, and the same case was in Germany and Italy, uh, there are very strong um, pro-Russian, uh, because it goes further back in history than just the Soviet Union, pro-Russian sentiment amongst uh, the working class uh, representatives of those countries. And um, so, so I was involved in this uh, solidarity, Polish solidarity campaign actively, um, and then, and then we also created another organization called Solidarity with Solidarity, which was focused on um, the Polish community in England, so Polish to Polish uh, relations inside the United Kingdom, and not where not the and whereas the Polish Solidarity campaign was focused on getting the English and the British people to 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 understand and. Uh, support solidarity so one was focused on the 
in local British community and the other one is focused on the local Polish community. And then uh, when martial law was imposed, um, that was a terrible day. I was uh, living in Brighton at the time, snowy day. And, uh, you know, I thought the world had collapsed, quite frankly. The first thing that I did was uh, I organized a picket uh, of a shipyard um, in uh, Southampton, Port Surrey's Portsmouth, where a Polish ship had docked just on the day of martial law. And uh, we, we used the occasion to uh, make a protest, but we also... Um, uh, where we received a bunch of Polish sailors who had jumped ship, who didn't want to go back to Poland. And we uh, took them under our wing, we found accommodation for them, and then helped them assimilate uh, in Britain because they, they, they claimed political asylum. Uh, but then, uh, and then I tried to go to Poland, uh, and I was um, refused a visa. So I wasn't allowed to go to Poland, which was very distraught for, for me, and decided that it's time to get involved in um, supporting the opposition in Poland, which had by that time been completely decimated uh, under military rule, and um, was uh, starting to be formed in the underground. And um, I got involved... Uh, that's how I got involved. To join the underground, you, you don't sign up. You don't send your CV and stuff like that. Um, you join by, uh, through, uh, through relationships uh, of trust that you have with people who are also part of that underground or have also joined. So it's like a uh, chain reaction type of process. Um, so... Um, my, my entry, shall we say, into the, the underground activity uh, was complicated a little bit. Uh, first of all, I uh, I left England um, because I was well known. I was known to the Soviet uh, Polish secret police operating in Great Britain, and uh, I couldn't get a visa, for example. Uh, to go so to Poland, you, so I left you, to England. How did you know that you were known by them? Because they refused me a visa to go to Poland. And, and at that time, it was I was devastated because it suddenly occurred to me that um, I may never be able to see my country again, you know. Um, luckily, it didn't turn out that way because in those days, uh, there was no internet, there was no computers, and, uh, and the refusal of a visa in one country didn't necessarily mean you'd get refused a visa if you applied in another country. At the time, I, I was going to study in Italy uh, at Johns Hopkins University, which is an American university, and uh, I moved to Italy, shall we say, reinventing myself in another country. That was the first thing. The second was that um, uh, I knew people who were already making contact with the Polish underground, and uh, they uh, either invited or I invited myself into into those uh, connections, and um, became, shall we say, a foot foot soldier um, uh, at at the beginning, and then uh, a third, then then I had my own initiatives took uh, took took uh, hold as well. I 
by chance, uh, some little bit of chance was involved here. I was involved with uh, Amnesty International. You know who they are in in Italy, and they they had adopted some political prisoners in Poland. And uh, at one point, I went to Poland using a visa through Italy, which I have got without any problem. And I made connections with uh, the family of uh, these. And she uh, just so happened that she was very, very deeply uh, involved in the Polish conspiracy and in this radical fraction. She was a woman in her own right, which if we have time, I I would like to talk about. Um, And she uh, trusted me immediately. And... um, Together with her, we developed uh, a lot of uh, business, shall we say. Over the years, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a, like a sequence. Uh, you know, you get more and more more deeply involved through contacts that you make, um, um, networks that you create, um, people introduce you, and so on and so on. But um, it all had to be done in extreme uh, secrecy because uh, one of the biggest mistakes of uh, underground conspiracy is to think that if you're in exile abroad, in, in the emigre, that you don't have to uh, maintain your, your uh, cover, your secrecy. And that's usually the Achilles heel of many opposition movements, is that they, their behaviour uh, outside of their country compromises them and exposes them and opens the way for uh, the secret police back in the country to to destroy you, yeah. So attention to to maintaining you know anonymity and discretion and uh, and all the sort of rules of of the game in both outside of Poland and when and inside of Poland. It's interesting because you're just you're as cagey as any person that I, I, I talk to. I mean, do you feel do you still feel a sense of discretion from those days and and also what was your kind of tradecraft i mean how did you keep operational security did you was yeah. it just not telling other people was it first of all uh, resist um all um inclinations towards vanity right to try to say that you're you know try to expose how important you are and that's that's something that you have to do internally, right? Because vanity, you know, saying that you oh, you know, I'm really important and stuff like that. Uh, but uh, so th- that was the first thing. The second thing is there there is a golden rule uh, of um, conspiracy, conspiracja, as we call it in Polish, which is underground activity, and that is um, that uh, they, the secret police your enemy they can uh, they can know who you are but they mustn't know what you do or they can know what you do but they mustn't know who you are and if you can keep separate what you do and who you are that's how you can be successful in the underground it's when the secret police knows what you do and who you are that's when you're stuffed um, that was sort of my guiding principle because uh, I think that uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, uh, at least um, in some countries uh, my activities were was picked up by um, the secret police but also by by people uh, 
communist uh, services that had infiltrated uh, emigre circles. But in other countries, I don't think they did know. And then uh, the case was also the other way around. In some countries, they probably knew what, what, what I was doing, but they didn't know that it was me that was doing it. So is that, uh, is that the answer to your question? Yeah, it's funny. I've never heard of that. I've never heard of that before, that difference between who you are and, and what you do. I mean, I've heard of like you know, not giving away three pieces of information about yourself that can be kind of triangulated. But also I imagine you have to be pretty savvy about who you trust. I think I was reading that there's there used to be a saying at the time that, you know, if one person knows, one person knows. If two people know, then 11 people know. <laughs> yes, there's probably something like <laughs> if that. If three people know, then 75 people know or something like that. Yes, yes. So. Well, especially when I was coming to Poland, um, I, uh, I would be quite very careful about uh, uh, who I met and um, and uh, people knowing who I was when I met them, uh, people who I was working with. And those meetings were often arranged by third parties. I had, a, I had my own pseudonym um, um, and I cooperated uh, with a, um, a fragmented group, groups in the Polish underground. I wasn't part of just one particular group. So I, for example, whereas I was part of this fighting solidarity movement, which is probably the biggest uh, and most well organized from the point of view of uh, you know cell, cell structures, which and one was it? It's called fighting solidarity. Fighting solidarity. Yeah, but I was also involved with a with a group in Wrocław, which was the um, the first independent. Uh, photographic agency in the Soviet bloc and it was a bunch of uh, photographers who uh, devoted their time to um, documenting photographically martial law in Poland the occupation of uh, Soviet troops in and their behavior demonstrations uh, acts of repression and so on and uh, I was their representative uh, for uh, Great Britain and sort of Northwestern Europe, and so I cooperated with them. And then there was another group that I worked with, uh, which was a more a group of uh, intellectuals called uh, an organization called CDN, which means the equivalent of TBC in English, which means to be continued. Chunk Dash and Nastampi. CDN was uh, a group or an, an underground structure that. Uh, was more composed of um, uh, intellectuals and uh, professionals, should we say, rather than workers or photographers or artists. So my contacts, uh, people I worked with, were, were quite uh, dispersed. And that, I think, was helpful as well for me because I wasn't um, locked into one particular organization that could at some point be compromised seems like in a, in a system like that where there's so many different groups, there's so many different ways of, of attacking it, that you would need someone who's a, a connector. Was that a role that you played as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. Both in Poland and uh, outside of Poland. These, these groups uh, 
the the Polish underground was very diversified. You know, we read about solidarity underground, but it wasn't just solidarity; it splintered. And uh, just like Polish politics today uh, is like the um, afterwave of that splintering. You know, people had different agendas, different opinions. Even solidarity, even before it was banned on, uh, under martial law, was already fractioning into different uh, fractions, groups, splinters with different agendas. Also, just by the sheer nature of underground activity, you operate in isolation, right? You have to create small groups uh, which don't interact with each other. So, so that fragmentation uh, was uh, deepened just by these, the conditions and circumstances under which you had to operate. So uh, performing a connecting function, as you say, was, uh, was sort of unique, I would say. It was very, not many people did that, yeah. In fact, I don't know anybody else really who did it. Was there a name for that specific there, role? There, there were connectors, you could say, higher up. For example, um, there were people, institutes, uh, uh, various various kinds of agencies uh, in in the West who were funded. Okay, their their role was to fund down further. Uh, the activities of the Polish underground. I I knew of m- many of those groups and uh, many of those entities, and I was receiving funding from them. But I was also getting contacts and connections uh, from them, and so I, I could say I was at that level, operative level. They were at the funding level, or the support level, and then, uh, pr- of course, presumably there was another level. Which was the uh, the ulterior funding that was coming from AFL, uh, the right wing French trades union, and who all kinds of you know other sources. So these were the the way the underground movement was uh, funded from abroad was uh, through this surrogate structure. Well, you probably know that, yeah. I'm surprised what I don't know about. Uh, <laughs> under, I remember it happening when I was wa- watching it and like seeing the face of it you know you see like Valencia you see the images of it you see Ronald Reagan talking about it but I'm only scratching the surface now and finding out everything that was going on so maybe you could talk about specifically who it was you would connect or maybe some of your um, specific operations that you did I mean would, did you from my understanding that some of these printed materials were printed outside outside of Poland, or at least they were written in typeset, and then they had to be brought into the country. Uh, I guess like any like any kind of economy, what was coming in and what was going out? Like where was the money coming? How did it all work? Okay. The support for uh, the underground and its operations, not just the product of its activities, was you could basically um, divide into several categories. The first was money. Right, from getting money and getting the money to po- to Poland, and remember at the time a dollar in a, a U.S. dollar in the West was uh, in Poland was worth a lot more. You could get a lot more for it uh, in Poland than you could get uh, in the West. So the money wasn't that big. A thousand dollars could get you an incredibly long way in Poland when it came to buying paper, ink. 
all that kind of stuff. So the first was funding, money. The second was printed uh, materials, like books, like you say, which were published in the West and were smuggled to Poland. Uh, the third was um, printing equipment, spare parts, uh, duplicators, fax machines, um, typewriters, uh, staplers, and all that stuff. Simple stuff, which uh, which you, you just you just needed to have in order to function to, to produce underground activity, uh, underground publications in in Poland itself. The equipment, and the fourth was. Um, what you could call is uh, counterintelligence apparatus, which involved um, uh, different kinds of electronic equipment, which uh, you needed to be able to function in, in, in underground circumstances in Poland itself. So an example was um, a, an apparatus called a scanner. A scanner was a electronic, uh, piece of electronic equipment which enabled the underground to listen in to the radio conversations of the SB and uh, once you understood how they communicated with each other you knew whether your uh, building was uh, surrounded whether someone was being followed or what their intentions were uh, another piece of equipment were miniature uh, cameras okay, which you would use to take photographs of documentation, microfilm and stuff like that so uh, that was the fourth category when it came to money, uh, like I said earlier, I, I was able to raise money from different sources, ranging from these institutions that uh, that I mentioned, like the Institute for Democracy in Eastern Europe, which was a Paris-based uh, entity, which was probably getting its money from uh, the CIA, uh, but uh, who's, who was staffed by Polish people. Irena Lasota, I don't know if you know her. Um, and her job was to push that money down to people like me, you know, into the operations. Uh, other sources were Polish government in exile, which still existed in London, uh, which gave me funding. Then there were philanthropists. Um, then there were... Um, George Soros apparently gave money as well. Yeah. There. Uh, he didn't give me any money, <laughs> at least not that I know of directly. Uh, but also, uh, we we were able to raise money by by our own means, just from people we knew, or from selling things like stamps, postage stamps, which were printed in underground conditions in Poland, smuggled out of Poland, and it was kind of a nice thing that you could give to somebody in return for a donation. I was quite surprised how much money you could raise by by selling solidarity stamps because they became collector's items. Uh, and then, you know, private individuals also would, would give money. And as I say, this kind of money could go quite a long way in Poland itself, but uh, was also used to finance uh, the purchase of the second category and the fourth category that I mentioned, equipment, spare parts, and counterintelligence apparatus. And, what about uh, communication equipment? Do they give you... You didn't have like burst transmitters or anything like that? No, it wasn't that sophisticated. It wasn't that sophisticated and probably better that way because uh, uh, even today, you know, the the pigeon post is the best. You know, it's the most secure. It can't be intercepted uh, as effectively. And then getting, then there was the question of uh, 
getting the stuff to Poland, whether it was books, uh, whether it was printing equipment or counterintelligence equipment, that was the biggest challenge. And um, that's where that's where I came into play. And because I was uh, living in different parts of Europe, I was organizing these routes uh, from different places. Like I had and different types of channels. Did you have call. any experience with like import export at, at this point? Like I did have a little bit. Yes, because I was uh, the uh, I had worked for a, um, a consulting business consulting company that, uh, and I had become a specialist in East West trade, and I had. Uh, a lot of contacts uh, with uh, businesses, businessmen working for businesses, who who were involved in East-West trade. And uh, at the time, because uh, Eastern Europe was totally bankrupt and was not able to pay for imports, uh, a, a large part of East-West trade was based Twice. on a barter basis. So countries like Poland or Czechoslovakia were paying not with money. Aluminum. Yeah. yeah. All kinds of stuff, you right. know. And I became a specialist in that. And I met met a, a lot of people and was able to, shall we say, persuade some of them to do the right thing and uh, help me get the stuff across. How did you do that? Um, relationship building, understanding where these people were coming from, uh, appealing to their sense of Values and uh, and flattering them that they are doing something good for the for the for freedom. So I had a, I had a, even a Japanese guy who worked for Fujitsu, who uh, was fantastic contact because he was able to import. I mean, he had a rep- he was a re- he had a representative offices in Warsaw, and he was able to import, you know, fax machines and uh, this kind of stuff quite easily. And it was just a question of uh, just that one extra machine, you know. Then there was this. Uh, well, anyway, it's a long. St- but there, that was an example of uh, uh, using sort of business connections. And there were also uh, companies that um, Polish companies that were um, private. Yes, uh, during the nineteen eighties, which uh, were involved in export import. And uh, it was possible, for example, to include some spare parts of printing equipment into um, pieces of machinery that were being imported and exported. They were simply added into the machine. We also had a we, because I wasn't it wasn't just me. We had a, a priest in Poland who who uh, <laughs> Jersey something. Sorry? No, 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 no. There was a just a local parish priest who who had a smuggling route out of Poland and became very rich, um, uh, smuggling antiques from Poland and selling them in the West. And he had a he had a sort of a, a white van type large truck, and because it was the Catholic Church, it was less controlled, it was more freedom of movement. And uh, he used uh, that uh, to uh, smuggle antique furniture and antique items of value out of Poland and made a lot of money that way. And uh, we persuaded him that uh, for a small fee, because he was a businessman essentially, um, he could use the return trip 
to smuggle things back into Poland. You know, you had to strike these kinds of uh, deals and compromises with, with people. Were you sharing intelligence with any other organizations? Like, for example, this priest, like how were, your tip, how were you tipped off to him? Through a connection who was on the buy side of the antiques, Polish connection, because he was traveling to Great Britain quite a long way. And then another route was um, there was a, a train called the Chopin Express, Chopin Express that uh, would travel every night uh, to Poland from uh, Vienna Central Railway Station. And uh, after some due diligence and analysis together with uh, another guy, we found, um, <clears throat> we found uh, spaces in this train uh, behind panels uh, underneath the seats where some of them not very big these spaces um, where uh, you could put stuff and uh, I would, my job was uh, before the train left and before the passengers uh, uh, entered the train in Vienna uh, while it was being cleaned by the cleaners I would go in there and I would uh, stuff the train uh, particular places in the train I even had a fake made key to 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 some of these panels, and uh, we would uh, we would put the put equipment, books, and stuff. Sometimes some equipment, some stuff that was ordered by the underground in Poland, and uh, the train would set off and go through. Uh, the Iron Curtain through twice the Czech border, which was really difficult, and then the Polish border, which is a little bit easier, and uh, on to Warsaw. And then um, my colleagues here, uh, dressed up as um, uh, railway men, would uh, get onto the train in Warsaw Zachodnia, which is a train stop just before Central Warsaw train station. There's a Western Warsaw train stop. And they have they would have about six to eight minutes between that station and the central train station to collect the stuff, and uh, that was another way that uh, we got stuff through. Uh, and the way we coordinated each other with each other was by phone, uh, using certain code words and which signified which carriage, which places, and which day. Then I had a. I was, because I was able to travel to different East European countries uh, with my job, uh, I traveled very often to Hungary, to Budapest, and to Czechoslovakia. And uh, at the time, during the 1980s, um, it was relatively easy. It was hard for people to, from Poland to travel to the West, but it was relatively easy for them to come to Hungary for their holidays or for some studies or visits or Maybe it's too much, you know. So I'm probably waffling a bit now, but I'll just finish the last, because you asked me for some examples. And the, uh, this, I, uh, one, uh, one of the channels uh, of smuggling was uh, the use of what we call in Polish ants, mrówki, which is basically people traffic. Students, uh, tourists, uh, visitors of various kinds traveling across the Iron Curtain from east to west. And um, because I was living in Vienna at the time, 
I had this good connection with uh, Hungary in particular, where uh, a lot of Poles from Poland used to come to Hungary and there was quite free, easy traffic between Poland and Hungary. And there was also relatively easy traffic between Hungary and Austria. So I was able to get, uh, first of all, I had to uh, make connection, contact with the Hungarian dissidents, these intellectuals. Um, there was a small dissident movement in Hungary in the 1980s in order to persuade them to uh, be the um, transmission base uh, for smuggling stuff through this ant traffic uh, onto Poland. And um, I, I traveled to Budapest. I made connections with uh, the, w one particular group. And uh, the amazing thing is, was they all spoke Polish. They had all learnt Polish, these intellectuals, because it was through the Polish language that they were able to read all the Samizdat illegal publications that were uh, floating around Eastern Europe, produced by the Polish underground. There was a big market for that in, in uh, the intellectual community in Hungary. And so um, I cut a deal with them that in return for them uh, skimming off some of the books that I would send for their own purposes, uh, they would store these these books, these publications, and um, give them to these ants that would be coming from Poland, students and so on, uh, who would be taking them back to Poland. And each one would take maybe ten, five or ten books, but, you know, a hundred people, that starts to look like a large volume of traffic. And I remember... Um, uh, a meeting with the Hungarian intellectual dissident in his beautiful sort of Art Deco apartment uh, in the center of Budapest and me asking him, well, where, where are you going to store these books, you know? And uh, he went over to uh, his mantelpiece, this beautiful stone mantelpiece, fireplace, and on each side there were these shelves with his books, you know? And then he pressed some button, and these shells, they just, they just opened like the gates mm. of, you know, heaven. And behind were these uh, in rather deep storage uh, spaces that uh, he kept my books. So there were all, all kinds of routes. Uh, other routes I would, I would be sending uh, equipment from Austria... I'll be acquiring uh, the equipment, uh, say printing equipment, uh, duplicators uh, from this uh, second-hand printing shop that I found in Vienna, just off the Judenplatz, which is there still to this day. And uh, I would send uh, it to Paris by train, uh, printed to train, and uh, my people would be then sending it to Poland uh, with the help of... Uh, one of these French trades unions uh, who had an easier access to, to, to Poland. Although I had, I had to terminate that, I decided to terminate that route after a while because I concluded that these people were really French intelligence. They weren't, uh, they weren't the French trades union that, uh, I mean, they were part of the trades union, but they were essentially French intelligence trying to get in on the act. So... Uh, so there's a long answer to your short question.
to TGSE or whatever. So why would the French want to get involved with it? They just wanted to be supportive. I'm not so sure. Um, Information was yes. worth something, right? Intelligence services <clears throat> just want to, you know, they do want to be in on things, but regardless of what the policy is, um, France generally was not uh, particularly supportive uh, for solidarity, uh, especially the underground movement, and especially any uh, radical independence fractions. This was um, probably our biggest challenge, was that uh, fighting solidarity was not uh, favorably looked on. You know, there was support for solidarity, trades union, restoration of Lech Wałęsa and stuff like that, but um, there was very little support for groups that uh, wanted to uh, gain independence from Poland because they were dis- these were we were by nature destabilizing uh, the, status the status quo, the Yalta Agreement, and uh, there was no sympathy for for this kind of destabilization in Germany, uh, in Italy, uh, in France, even in Britain, and uh, maybe to some extent even in the United States because. I traveled to the United States in 1987 and uh, I really tried. I tried to get in touch. I tried to connect with the CIA. I tried to connect with the AFL, CIO. I tried to um, get in touch with, I mean, I met with people in something called the Solidarity Endowment and none of them really had the time for me. Now, that may be a problem of me, but I think it was... I think it was because uh, we were not the people that they wanted to support. So where where, did you, where were you based mostly? Where were you in Vienna. You you were working out of Vienna. Yeah. So I looked at some chart. It said a lot of support was coming through from Sweden. Sweden. Yeah. yeah. Why why is that? Was it just a because Sweden, Sweden was uh, the Sweden and Finland were the sort of closest to neutral countries uh, in the Cold War. And so the relationship between Sweden and uh, Poland was uh, much looser, I mean much more uh, easy than, say, West European countries. That's one reason. Second is that Sweden, uh, the the barriers were much smaller because you just had to get the boat, uh, get the stuff across by sea, uh, as opposed to crossing, you know, uh, the Iron Curtain border controlled, you know, by the... Czechs and uh, East Germans, because Poland, remember, is isolated from Western Europe by by two very hard line communist countries, Czechoslovakia and East Germany, and um, those those two countries uh, were very very difficult to get through. So, were you paying much attention to the, the content of these? Publications and magazines, or was it? Or were you more or less like the transporter, like that? I don't look in the bag. I mean, I knew what I was uh, sending, and uh, uh, but uh, my my job was to support, uh, you know, an authentic indigenous uh, movement uh, for which I for for the freedom of Poland, and I think um, I wasn't selective in that sense. I mean, I, obviously, I wasn't sending. Um, anarcho-syndicalist propaganda or right-wing fascist uh, stuff uh, it was just generally 
mainstream sort of uh, freedom orientated uh, publications mm-hmm. just going back to the martial law and there's some other big events like I think Pope John Paul visiting Poland a couple of times like what for you or kind of significant milestones along the way between between martial law and the elections I guess in 1989 that either made your job easier or made it more difficult I would say in fact the most there were significant moments like the murder of Jerzy Popiełuszko which radicalized the situation Um, there was uh, the murder of a colleague of mine in London a trade Polish trades unionist who was found hanging off a tree in Hyde Park in London uh, which sort of uh, were sort of milestones you know closer to home they weren't big political events but I think uh, there was a sort of uh, uh, there was like a a, a drawing milestone uh, extended in time which was the the gradual uh, fatigue that set in uh, during the 1980s um, uh, in the underground because uh, uh, at the time you know there was no no one knew that communism was going to collapse the country was totally bankrupt, uh, so the living conditions were really awful. Uh, people started becoming very tired of the you know, risk that they were taking in the underground. People were getting caught, uh, their lives were being ruined. Uh, um, and so it became harder and harder to um, keep um, the underground mobilized. You know, people who were in the early years, you know, fully enthusiastically cooperating and getting involved, they just wanted to take a rest, you know, they they, they, they were just tired, you know. And uh, it became, uh, from just a human relationship point of view, it became harder and harder. So it was not a milestone as such, but it was like a, a process. Certainly the Gorbachev, uh, arrival of Gorbachev, made a difference and also the beginnings of the technological revolution uh, technolo- technological change I think is worth mentioning here because at the beginning of the 80s uh, we were sending for example um, a typewriter right? but by the second half of the 1980s PCs were available in Western Europe You know, these portable PCs they weren't laptops yet simple PCs and you know a PC compared to a, even an electric typewriter an Olivetti right it's like a day and night you know you could store you could print you could write you know you had an underground little organization in, in one little box the arrival of videos video cassettes you know by the second half of the 1980s um Enough people in Poland had acquired uh, video uh, VCRs, yeah, video recorders, um, that it was possible to start sending, instead of books, we could send send films to Poland, you know, copies of banned movies, um, things like that. And so technological change was making it uh, easier in this particular case. And um, of course, we 
there was no internet yet and stuff like that. But uh, you could see that uh, the second half of the 1980s was different technologically from the first half. You know? So instead of sending books, printed books, which often we used to miniaturize to make them, you know, to more space effect- affected, uh, we were sending video cassettes, crappy copies of copies, really, really lousy quality stuff, but we were just, we were just, you know, sending it to Poland. We were going through some, I was going through some suitcases yesterday of materials. There was like uh, an old magazines. We sell it in a Solidarity Weekly. There's some of those. There was, um, but there were some that were tiny, they were like this big, and the print was really small. Yeah. As well, and I think, did you have anybody over the age of forty <laughs> reading these things? <laughs> Actually, I you need like a microscope to read some of these things. Yeah, right? was that intentional just to make space? I guess. Yes. Yeah, it was. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. These books are all in good condition. Yeah. Some people really saved this stuff. Yeah, we could probably start wrapping this up. I guess I got a couple kind of broad questions. Um, are there any common misconceptions about this movement you'd like to clarify? Right now, there's there's a lot of attention about. You know, in the November, November, the, the Berlin Wall and German reunification, and um, I remember when that happened it, pretty quickly. I was in Berlin at the time, like in 1989, where Leipzig, Dresden, suddenly Alexanderplatz was these huge demonstrations, like the, like it was their idea to overthrow communism. But yeah. you know, you went like eight or nine years, yeah. you know, going through that fatigue not really knowing that the Soviets wouldn't crack down like they did in Hungary and Czechoslovakia. I guess mm. I'm just... I mean, I know it's, it's kind of an ego thing, but do you, do you feel like it gets its due? Um, well, it's a good question. I mean, I... You know, when Poland became free, over the years, uh, many of the, the dissidents and most famous people in the, in the Polish underground were recognized. I think they got their fair recognition. Uh, many of them became public figures uh, in, in politics and so on, and culture after, in free Poland. But um, people like me, whose essence of uh, activity was anon- anonymity, uh, we, we remained for a long time anonymous. Yeah. So not many people really... Well, no one really. And it's only in the last few years that uh, attention has sort of been uh, shifted to to the to people like me. You know, like I mentioned earlier, I was awarded this quite uh, probably much too high medal uh, uh, in recognition of my activities. But I was awarded it just a few years ago. You know. 25 years after the fact. Why do you think that is? Well, I think one is because um, all the famous people, all the well-known distance, they've already got all their medals and there's no, no one else. Who else can we give the medals to? Let's try to find somebody else, yeah? So they started interest, you know, taking an interest, you know, who was, doing, who was doing the dirty work, yeah? Who was doing the hard... Who was taking the risk? So uh, I think... Generally speaking, with that change, um, yeah, I think people from the underground have been given their due, fine, pretty much, yeah. What, what was the most difficult thing of the whole experience, and what was prob- and what's probably your, your greatest reward from that? 
The most difficult thing were, was just the practical organization, you know, the practical aspects of, of, of getting this stuff across. And, you know, some of the disappointments that were related to that. For example, you know, I, we tried to get something through Sweden and we lost it, yeah. We had a, a colleague who was murdered uh, in England to, to frighten us, you know. Essentially, it was a signal from the secret services of Poland that we should, you know, warn us really not to do this. Yeah. So the, those kinds of... Um, uh, practical disappointments and also the feeling that you know you never what you did was never enough you could have done more on the and then you asked what I'm most satisfied about as well most rewarding, yeah. what the most the most rewarding was um, was the end result really is the fact that we we collectively uh, as the Polish opposition through peaceful means and through a war of the hearts and minds were able to win you know whereas uh, so many times in Polish history we've lost yeah and usually it's because we uh, took up took up arms so uh, that's very that's very rewarding you know that uh, I belong unlike my father's generation and his father's generation and previous generations in my family they all had their moment in history and they all lost pretty much. Whereas we, well, I had my moment in history and uh, we won. Thank you very much. Now I know who you are and what you did. Now what you do, what you did. <laughs> that was my debrief with Witold Radvansky, a former Polish underground organizer and operator for the Fighting Solidarity Movement. He's now a successful businessman who generously took time afterward to show me old Warsaw, locations of some of his clandestine meetings, his dead drops, and an old iron gate along a cobblestone roadway where he could reliably lose a tail from the then ever-present SB. Thanks to my sponsor, the Vendor Museum of the Cold War, for sharing this content. And this weekend, January 26, 2020, I'll be conducting a live interview at the museum with another of the Polish underground, artist and activist Thomas Osinski. Go to thevendamuseum.org for details or check out thelivedrop.com in the show notes. If you like this episode, keep listening. End of transmission. Transmission.